0: This is the Nietzsche Podcast. The overman. It's a notorious concept, and it's really the last great idea of Nietzsche's that we have not fully explored on the podcast. And so I'm excited to finally arrive at this place with all of you, especially those of you who've been following along for the entire journey. I'm not sure one can fully grasp the concept of the overman without understanding the idea in context with all of these other ideas of eternal recurrence, amor fati, the will to power, and so on. And so now with all of this information, I think we all understand, or at least we should at this point, what Nietzsche is doing in the book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He's crafting a new religion to replace the Christian religion. You might call it the Dionysian religion. And he is effecting a revaluation and an overcoming of the old metaphysics, which, of course, goes hand in hand with a revaluation of the old morality. In Nietzsche's vision, the overman is to be the central figure in this revaluation and the new receptacle of valuing for all humankind to invest their hopes in. Now, it may seem strange to suggest that the overman should be tackled or should, you know, you should wait. Uh, to tackle the overman until you've already understood all the other major ideas of nietzsche's work after all his most famous book is thus spoke zarathustra and it begins uh more or less immediately with zarathustra going down from you know his solitude on the mountain to teach and then the first thing he teaches in that book is the overman it's like the famous uh, you know first line of his uh his his preaching and it's how his sermon to the people in the marketplace uh opens it's right at the beginning of the work it's in the prologue in fact you know uh that's where we get the most extensive discourse on the topic of the overman so it seems that the concept for Nietzsche is presented almost as a preliminary idea and yet you know what we see in the course of the story the people of the marketplace reject the idea they reject Zarathustra they actually ask for the opposite of the overman Right uh they say Zarathustra is a fool and a buffoon, and they cast him cast him out of the town um so I think that um that's how many intellectuals still today greet Zarathustra and his message of the overman. You know he's not understood his idea uh Nietzsche's idea, Zarathustra's idea, is still taken in the most vulgar, uncharitable, literal terms. And owing to our modern sensibilities that are inherited from Christianity and, you know, colored by the modern ideas of utilitarianism, I think the way Nietzsche characterizes the people, the marketplace still applies today. You know, they we gravitate towards the last man, the opposite of the overman who represents comfort, reduction of pain and suffering and uh, contentment. So I can't help but wonder if the introduction of this idea in this manner is meant by Nietzsche to predict or to mirror the way in which the intellectuals respond to the overman doctrine in real life. Um, but this highlights, I think, an important aspect of this are Zarathustra and the ideas contained therein. Um, I think there's an intentionally esoteric and exoteric meaning to these passages. There's a sense in which you could take them at face value, but another sense, a deeper sense, in which there's a rich philosophical meaning that's informed by a a broader context of Nietzsche's life and thought. I think it's, it's entirely possible that Nietzsche intended the ideas in Thus Spoke Zarathustra to hit people on that emotional level, on the subconscious level, or to speak in Jungian terms that Nietzsche may have intended to convey ideas which were archetypal or symbolic in nature, which can quite possibly be comprehended, like intuitively, even by those with no background in philosophy, right? Or or no background in Nietzsche's broader work. Perhaps that's the way religious texts in general interface with their psyche. And so um, perhaps that's what Nietzsche doing. But alas, because this is a philosophy podcast, we're here to rigorously analyze. Uh, so um, on, on that, because of those considerations of actually not just uh, sort of taking in the overman idea in an artistic or intuitive way, but in a philosophical way, I've saved it for last. Um, even though such an unconscious uh, automatic understanding, we might say of the overman, you know, that might be possible. We're here to talk about all the philosophical nuances and implications. So we can't, can't leave it in that realm. Um, and you know, as another, just maybe one final word about the religious element of the text before we move on. Um, and how Nietzsche may have intended it to be received, um, it's entirely possible that those encountering the text as their first and only encounter with Nietzsche's writing might well take, uh, the concept of the overman and the eternal recurrence in a vulgar way, which is to say literally, remember, that's, you know, what the word vulgar means. Vulgar means common. It's very likely that for the multitudes who converted to christianity in the wake of the sort of the christian moral zeitgeist right that started in rome and then took over all europe um a lot of those people probably took the idea of christ's resurrection as a literal story and the you know the symbolic or the esoteric meaning the deeper meaning like that might have had the kind of thing that might have held relevance to like a gnostic philosopher or theologian right those aspects would have been lost on the great multitude um The majority would not perceive the deeper psychological significance that you know so in Nietzsche's critique for example that the the religion of Christianity um installs martyrdom and the rejection of the physical world as the highest image and the highest value, right the masses wouldn't have like a conscious understanding of the psychological significance going on there um and, you know, of course, Nietzsche might agree with this because he would say it wasn't until I came along that this underlying psychological truth of the religion was revealed. Um, and so I, I guess I just this is all to say, perhaps Nietzsche intends that the overman idea remain a vulgar, literal idea of a coming superhuman individual that should be our new highest value towards which we sacrifice everything. Right. It's a gross answer in the same way that God is a gross answer. Um. It's a gross answer to the problem of values. Um, you, you, you might be able to accept this myth in quite literal terms, and unconsciously it still changes the way that you think in value. We'll put it like that. Perhaps that was Nietzsche's intention. But again, for us, we, we're going to be very conscious, consciously analytical about all this. Now, I use the translation overman for the German uh, Übermensch. Über means over, super, beyond. I prefer overman to superman therefore for a number of reasons i mean this is pretty pretty common uh translation these days right originally people tended to go for superman in recent years overman is the more popular translation but the obvious problem with the name superman is that it it, superman is a recognizable superhero name so there's all of that baggage but more importantly overman more adequately expresses the idea of overcoming man Um, or of being something above and beyond mankind. That's the most basic explanation of what the overman concept is. The overman is not a figure who's ever existed in recorded history, nor is the overman something which any one of us can quote-unquote become. Whenever Nietzsche speaks of the overman, it is always as a thing to come, always a being which has not yet arrived, always above and beyond whatever it is that man is like in the present moment whatever our current failings and faults our all too human as Nietzsche calls it whatever is left over from the natural world and simply you know a continued expression of the blind desires of animal nature the overman is humanity that has overcome those things it's what humanity can be the potential that we can aspire to because the overman is always discussed in the realm of potential and within therefore the future Uh, it's never discussed as something that uh, that the people Zarathustra is preaching to, or that even Zarathustra himself can reach. The overman is the infinite potential for growth in mankind. It's infinite because every sacred ideal for mankind must be infinite. We must never be able to exhaust the potential that our highest sacred ideal offers us. So, again, think about, in contrast, God, the Christian God. You can't ever exhaust God's love of man. You know, God is infinite in all these respects, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-wise, all-loving, uh, all, all these things. And so, um, there's, a, there's a limit there, right? Um, there's a direction in which infinity points in. Infinity is really a direction. You, you don't ever reach, quote-unquote, reach infinity, right? It's kind of almost a, a nonsensical question to ask about reaching a state of infinity, but it's a direction in which you proceed which is never exhausted. You can always continue proceeding in that direction. So whatever our current state, our current accomplishments, our virtues, our nobility, the overman stands infinitely above all of that. We are to the overman what lesser primates are to us. That is how far above us the overman stands. And so lest one confuse that for a biological or racial concept, Nietzsche never writes of the overman in terms of a race or even in the plural form at all it's always in the singular individual he does not speak of mankind bringing forth over mankind or humanity giving way to a form of life or like a species which is over humanity he doesn't write about over men it's always the over man why um I think it's actually a fairly easy answer when uh, one has looked through all of Nietzsche's work and perceived the quest that he's really on here that's led him to this idea, the need the idea is fulfilling. Um, you know, if we look in his early essays and drafts, even before his career as a published philosophical writer, uh, it's this idea that recurs. It's only through the rarest types, uh, the rarest figures among mankind that life can be justified or redeemed. He, I think we've talked about it before, but he talks about it multiple ways, man being elevated, justified, or redeemed um in the unfinished essay we philologists which was intended to be part of the untimely meditations but never published Nietzsche writes how can one praise and glorify a nation as a whole even among the Greeks it was the individuals that counted the Greeks are interesting and extremely important because they reared such a vast number of great individuals how is this possible the question is one which ought to be studied End quote. And then a little further down, he continues in this essay quote, With the help of favorable measures, great individuals might be reared who would be both different from and higher than those who heretofore have owed their existence to mere chance. Here we may still be hopeful in the rearing of exceptional men. End quote. And so that, I mean, it's remarkable because that's written in the 1870s before Nietzsche, I think, really had even conceived of the project of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. This was um, a notion that Nietzsche entertained for the better part of a decade before even embarking on that work. The idea that, um, what would you say, transforming the entire species of mankind or like achieving some sort of political utopia, utopia for mankind Uh salvaging a given culture or society that's all sort of missing the mark the object the goal lies only in the highest individuals um and Nietzsche wavers I would say actually in his early work in terms of how extreme he's willing to be in valuing the rare individual above like the total sum of humanity um there are times when I mean I've often pointed out uh in in this podcast how the very fact that he's concerned with culture at all and considers him a cultural critic and sees culture as this thing which is sort of like transcends any one individual um that in and of itself (laughs) is not a totally individualistic idea it doesn't place the value solely into the individual and so he kind of goes back and forth right um i don't think he had totally figured out how all that would work in his his early work yet and he you know he's not a systematic philosopher so we should expect to find some contradictory thoughts and sentiments but um it is around that time in the untimely meditations where he then explores the types of the saint the artist and the philosopher and ultimately he finds none of them offer the image of a higher type of man although there is that important caveat with the philosopher right because he offers it not in his own image but in the ability to create new values and as such it's not that we find examples of overmen in any of those types nor in any historical personage who's existed uh, Nietzsche writes and thus books Zarathustra this is a book two the chapter called the priests quote never yet has there been an overman naked I saw both the greatest and the smallest man they're still all too similar to each other fairly even the greatest I found all too human end quote um so the overman has not existed within history not within any person this includes even figures Nietzsche had the most praise for such as Caesar Napoleon Goethe Heraclitus all the rest all of those the these great people were still human all too human Nevertheless, the model of a few extraordinary people arising in a given society provides, like, a, a blueprint of the ideal, that even if no historical figure can be called an overman, because the overman is the ideal individual who's always infinitely uh, beyond anything human, they're sort of, what would you... So Nietzsche says in his prologue for Zarathustra, the overman's like a, like a, li- a lightning flash. It's like a sudden, violent flash. that has been building up for years and uh, generations. So we might say every, quote-unquote, great person that's ever existed you know whatever your definition of a great person might be there's sort of a a premonition a flash of the overman right but the overman remains ever in the sphere of potential um in the future it's a thing to come a thing towards which we can aspire and which can entice us it's an infinite um standard against we can against which we could measure ourselves and so what Nietzsche wishes to do in fact is to give us something that can replace the idea of God and we've now returned then to the problem we discussed um more or less at the beginning of the podcast the metaphysical world has disappeared it no longer holds any use or enticement for us the true world has finally become a fable and God is dead there's no thing of infinite value towards which our lives can work and find meaning in nothing beyond ourselves to sacrifice to this is a real catastrophe because well because of the problem of nihilism that ensues in absentia of anything absolute or unquestionable nothing of eternal value which means that the interpretation of god's death as a good thing is not correct but the interpretation of god's death is meaning that we should either you know return to Christianity or else you know like regard the whole affair of losing the true world as sorrowful and lamentable and you know weep for what humanity has lost Um, that's not accurate either for the philosophers and free spirits the death of God is something which fills their hearts with hope with gratitude and with great expectations for the future this is just summarizing what Nietzsche writes in the passage in book five of the gay science what our cheerfulness signifies and why is this? Because the philosopher can create new values. The philosopher can be a self-legislator of value. And so this is just what Nietzsche does, and thus spoke Zarathustra, or attempts to do. And it's what he says. That's why we, the philosophers and free spirits, um, look to the death of God as an opportunity. The ultimate task now presents itself. And from Nietzsche's perspective, one could see it as um, it's, it's, when mankind faces its most terrifying dangers, um, but it's also an adventure. We need something of eternal value to replace God. We have to find that new thing. And it can't be something abstract or clinical. It can't simply be another another variation on old myths that we don't believe in anymore. Um, And another thing that Nietzsche is often stalwart in um asserting it can't be fully replaced by endeavors in politics the sciences or even in the arts we we need a new metaphysical and moral orientation a new perspective you might say that is centered around a new image an ideal uh, a new eternal value like the old God provided and so Nietzsche uh, for this task creates the overman in the second chapter of book two of Zarathustra Nietzsche makes this connection between the idea of God and the idea of the overman he makes it very directly it's also a beautiful passage in its own right this is the chapter called upon the Blessed Isles and uh, I'll just I'll read from it here quote the figs are falling from the trees they're good and sweet and as they fall their red skin bursts I am a north wind to ripe figs thus like figs these teachings fall to you my friends now, consume their juice and their sweet meat. It is autumn about us, and pure sky and afternoon. Behold what fullness there is about us, and out of such overflow it is beautiful to look out upon distant seas. Once one said, God, when one looked out upon distant seas, but now I have taught you to say, Overman. God is a conjecture, but I desire that your conjectures should not reach beyond your creative will. Could you create a God? Then do not speak to me of gods. But you could well create the overman. Perhaps not you yourselves, my brothers, but into fathers and forefathers of the overman, you could recreate yourselves and let this be your best creation." Um, I love how Zarathustra often uses the language of being like a powerful gale or wind and here he talks about how he's like an autumn wind shaking free the figs which represent wisdom right um and so he says autumn and afternoon so these are all things of being sort of um we're we're late we're at the the time when the sun is setting on on humanity and so this is the time when we can reap all this all this wisdom so the end of an era the end of the passage is very important let your best creation be what your own recreation of yourself recreate yourself and not into the overman but into the fathers and forefathers of the overman live your life in such a way that you are bringing the overman forth and uh earlier in the passage of course there's the explicit statement of saying overman where we once have said God um and Nietzsche employs the language of looking out over distant seas because traveling on the open sea uh conjures up danger and adventure in the sense of exploration and self-mastery it's a metaphor uses often and that's where Nietzsche thinks we find meaning is in the ideal that lays beyond our current state of being and so this is a effectively a shift from a metaphysics based on being to a metaphysics based on becoming the overman is our ideal uh, in the world of becoming and so in the old Christian worldview man comes out of an original contentment right that's the garden of eden man lives in communion with god it's just sort of like this endless periodical um existence where mankind doesn't have to do any work and there's no you know death or suffering or aging but um it's because of our sin you know we we leave that state and so then man lives in this world of sin of suffering of death and impermanence and disease and eternally wishes to get back to their original contentment and the promise of Christianity is heaven which is basically a return to that right well it's a return to your communion with God it's a return to eternity an eternity of bliss God you know also has a category it's a this concept of an ever-present eternal unchanging character in nature and so all of the value is invested in this quest to a return to stasis an escape from becoming where this world where everything is impermanent and as you know everything's mortal and so we suffer right and experience pain and all this and that and the other so nietzsche on the other hand thinks that the true character of life is becoming that loving life means loving and accepting becoming so his ideal is not eternal bliss but um well i mean his ideal is eternal recurrence right that one's life as one lives it is eternal and there's no rest in an afterlife um that uh becoming is the very cloth of reality and secondly the overman instead of God that's the other element of this one doesn't wish to return to stasis the ideal is transformation and becoming one doesn't value a return to an original contentment but to bring forth something beyond themselves the focus is still on the individual level you know let your best creation be a recreation of yourself but importantly it's a recreation of yourself with this awareness that you're an aspect of becoming. You understand yourself not as a final, essentialized thing, but as a dynamic thing. You, as a living being, as part of life, are always moving, growing, becoming. And therefore, the question's not what you wish to be, but in which direction should life proceed? In which direction will you carry life? And Nietzsche is saying, in this new understanding of what we ourselves are, you know, dynamic becomings, which are not defined by an essence or a state, but by what it is that they bring forth that we should choose to idealize whatever it is that is better than what we are currently now, that we should make it our goal to live in a way that we ensure that we bring forth that better, whatever it may be. Um, and so there's another part further in that passage where Nietzsche emphasizes, this is what it means to be a creator, to give birth to something beyond yourself. This is still in the second chapter of book two quote creation, That is the great redemption from suffering, and life's growing light. But that the Creator may be, suffering is needed, and much change. Indeed, there must be much bitter dying in your life, you Creators. Thus are you advocates and justifiers of all impermanence. To be the child who is newly born, the Creator must also want to be the mother who gives birth, and the pangs of the birth giver. End quote. So in a sense, what we've meant whenever we've talked about the redemption or the elevation of man has always been addressing the problem of suffering. Right? So again, Nietzsche rejects assessing life according to the amount of suffering in it. He rejects that as being an invalid way of assessing the value of reality because he thinks suffering is a means to an end, right? It's something in your nervous system meant to motivate you. It's a tool of your will meant to push you in one direction or the other. Um, and and here in this passage, that's clear, right? Suffering's needed in order to bring forth creators, um, creators who are likened to children themselves, but also they have to simultaneously be that and the mother giving birth and the birth pangs. They're sort of like a father, son, Holy Spirit, or we might say mother, child, and uh, holy birth pangs. I don't know. Um, but the child is a symbol of creativity both because the child is a thing newly created itself, but also children are creative, and they're creative in a naive and innocent way, creative in a natural way. And so to become such a creator and a self-legislator, suffering is needed, but setting, setting that aside, we have to acknowledge the blunt reality. It is struggling and suffering in combination with what Nietzsche often calls you know, the cry of, in vain, that's what humans find truly intolerable why nietzsche writes that he who has a why can bear any how it's not suffering in and of itself therefore that's the real problem of life it's not it's not we're not going to find the answer to suffering in eliminating trying to eliminate suffering which is something as futile as it is as it would be pointless um because the real problem is the perception that it's meaningless suffering and so nietzsche spells out in this passage then in explicit terms what it is that makes the suffering meaningful, and that is the creation of something beyond yourself. That is the answer to suffering. That is how you create meaning in it. And it's for this reason that Nietzsche is, there's always a sense he's trying to instill into us a willingness to accept uh, our untergehen. Uh, Sorry, my German is notoriously terrible, but untergehen, our downgoing, Uh, or going under, uh, it's a word in German that Nietzsche uses quite a bit in Zarathustra. Um, and it doesn't mean going under in a mundane sense, you know, in the sense of walking underneath something, but going under in the sense of a downfall, things that go under in the sense of the word Untergehen in German would be things like ships as in sinking, right? If a ship, uh, does an Untergehen, it's sinking that would be the meaning or the sun as in the sun is setting the sun in german they say the sun is going under right could also apply the word to a nation or a culture as when one says that a civilization falls you would say the civilization goes under uh, and we'll see when we get deeper into zoroaster's first major sermon in the book which is the topic of the overman he repeats the idea of going under again and again and again and he means this term to apply to ourselves um, on the individual level not only in the sense of literally dying but also understanding ourselves conceiving of ourselves as yielding or giving way at our proper time to something greater that will take our place so the important thing for nietzsche is that you give rise to something that you create something to succeed you and you should be willing to go under in order to make way for this new something. As David Bowie wrote in the song, Oh, You Pretty Things, the lyric got to make way for the homo superior, right? Which means homo, you know, human. This means, of course, superior human. And this was confirmed by Bowie as a reference to the ideas of Nietzsche. So. So long as the thing that you're going under to make way for (laughs) is truly something better than what came before, you should honor that thing as your own creation and make your life as you have lived it meaningful by giving way, giving rise to that thing, to that offshoot of yourself. And so um, we therefore understand our lives in this Zarathustrian Dionysian religion as, you know, in terms of living under a great noontide. That's another metaphor he uses quite a bit. This is from the last chapter of book two, sorry, book one of Zarathustra. Uh, it is the great noontide when man stands in the middle of his way between beast and overman and celebrates his way to the evening as his highest hope, for it is the way to a new morning. Then will he who goes under bless himself for being one who goes over and beyond, and the sun of his knowledge will stand at high noon for him. Dead are all gods. Now we want the overman to live on that great noontide let this be our last will End quote. so be willing to let your own sun set and go towards evening because this means the new morning of something greater and more powerful than you and so throughout Zarathustra's sermons he's constantly throwing in the refrain of how the person in question you know either is or isn't a bridge to the overman so, you know, for example, in the passage of the Despisers of the Body, he sort of concludes with, Oh, you, de- you, Despisers of the Body, you're not a bridge to the Overman, right? right. So, um, that's a new diss, a new insult you can try using on your friends um, if they disappoint or upset you. just are like, No, man, you're not a bridge to the Overman. So, uh, and conversely, Zarathustra's way of giving praise is to suggest that you are giving rise to the overman so the overman is the new god it's the new measure of all value in existence as we've said and so for the rest of the episode we're now going to go back to Zarathustra's prologue and do an in-depth look at Zarathustra's sermon about the overman to the people of the Marketplace Zarathustra arrives at the town in part three of the prologue many people are gathered together in the Marketplace waiting for the performance of a tightrope walker Zarathustra then speaks to the crowd quote I teach you the overman man is something that shall be overcome what have you done to overcome him End quote. Again notice he uses the singular for man and for overman and suggests that all of us could do something to overcome man we that we as humans can do something to overcome humanity in our own lives as we live them today humanity shall be overcome as a, Speaking as a collective subject, right? We could say, just as all species evolve and change. This level of analysis is certainly true, but the focus is on what have you done? We can relate this to the passage we discussed before. Let your recreation of yourself, you know, into a being that can become an ancestor of the overman, let that be your greatest creation. So Zarathustra continues, quote, all beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great flood? And even back to the beasts rather than overcome man what is ape to man a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment and man shall be just that for the overman a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment you have made your way from worm to man and much in you is still worm once you were apes and even now too man is more ape than any ape whoever is wisest among you is also a mere conflict and cross between plant and ghost. But do I bid you become ghosts or plants? Behold, I teach you the overman. End quote. So again, the language he here employs, um, he uses evolution as a metaphor. And you know, again, I won't deny the potential aspect of a literal biological aspect to this idea of man being overcome by the next species of man. It's, it's important. I think it's important to conceive of ourselves as a species, not as a fixed thing, right? That man is a dynamic thing and we evolved and will continue evolving. That's a very healthy way to look at it. But the ideal of the overman is not something relevant to our lives because of the potential evolutionary path of man in several million years. You know, the reason it's relevant to recognize, um, what would you say like the transitory nature of our own form today um and like the fact that nothing is the same forever um it's 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 valuable to recognize that however much value we may ascribe to our way of life today it may be superseded by some way of life which is it's so much so much better that our lives look shameful in comparison right we look disgraceful in comparison but to delve into the biological metaphor a bit more to the extent that it's relevant you know, when Nietzsche says, much in us is still worm, that man is more ape than any ape. Um, I mean, this is, this is he's referring to the fact that uh, we've talked about before, much of our conscious life is simply a continuation of the same blind desires that drive the animals. We simply do it in the light of consciousness. We're naked apes, right? But with our self-reflective intellect, we now know that we're naked apes. And so that's my interpretation specifically of that line of more ape than any ape. Um, you know. Uh, if you have any other explanations of that line, please write me with them or record a, a voice message and send it in. Cause I know there's probably a lot of interpretations or explanations of that line out there. Uh, the other major aspect of that part that I just read is the idea that the wisest among us are merely ghosts and plants or rather a cross between a ghost and a plant. And what does that mean? It means that even our deepest philosophers and most insightful, holy men and most inspired artists have reached for the beyond in the abstract and imaginary worlds that they create, hence they become like to ghosts following in the mold of Descartes, you know, our enlightened ones come to perceive the mind or the spirit as separate and distinct from the body. And uh, accordingly, they invent all sorts of phantasms and fantastic ideas within this spiritual realm and uh they become a cross between a ghost and a plant because on the physical level the biological level they're still living and growing according to these predictable fixed patterns that's what the metaphor of the plant is here it speaks to us of being stationary you know even though the plant lives and grows it does so predictably and unconsciously so nietzsche is saying it's not as though our greatest human beings have actually elevated us in terms of the only sense that matters right the physical sense They haven't elevated us into anything better or higher we still have the same instincts the same all too human the only difference is that now now we experience this contradiction between being a ghost and being a plant you know being a mind versus being a body and so we feel as though we're a cross between these two incongruous things Um, but zarathustra does not bid us to become these things or to make this distinction He wants uh, mankind to grow into something beyond itself. And it's I think this is another way of pointing out how mind body dualism was a, a tragic misstep in man's philosophical moral development. But we'll continue the passage, quote, Behold, I teach you the overman. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say the overman shall be the meaning of the earth, end quote. And just to briefly interject, he emphasizes the words shall be meaning again, the overman must be a thing that shall be. It's the meaning of the earth for us right now, because where we find meaning is in giving rise to something beyond ourselves and the knowledge that we are giving rise to the overman will justify our lives on this earth. But it's also a thing to be because it's always a future. That's infinitely beyond us. So back to the text quote, I beseech you brothers remain faithful to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of other worldly hopes poison mixers are they whether they know it or not despisers of life are they decaying and poison themselves of whom the earth is weary so let them go End quote. so remember how the holy man is like a doctor who is himself sick treating sick people the holy people of past moral ages were poisoned by the hatred of this world and their desire to get beyond the earth Nietzsche is invoking at the end here, however, the principle that weakness always undermines itself. It always becomes its own undoing. That which is weak will perish on its own accord. So all you have to do is let them go. No need to wage war on them, right? Uh, What is essential, though, is that all of us, however, we free spirits remain faithful to the earth, remain faithful to this world of becoming. Quote, Once the sin against God was the greatest sin, but God died, and these sinners died with him. To sin against the earth is now the most dreadful thing, and to esteem the entrails of the unknowable higher than the meaning of the earth. Once the soul looked contemptuously upon the body, and then this contempt was the highest, she wanted the body meager, ghastly, starved. Thus she hoped to escape it and the earth. Oh, this soul herself was meager, ghastly and starved and cruelty was the lust of this soul. But you too, my brothers, tell me, what does your body proclaim of your soul? Is not your soul poverty and filth and wretched contentment? So I think at this point, I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory passage, having looked as we have at Nietzsche's view of saints and holy men. Asceticism is this feeling for cruelty directed inward in order to viciously tyrannize over the body and its drives as a means of rejecting the world and trying to trying to escape from the world we therefore separated the body entirely from the consciousness calling the conscious mind the soul and Zarathustra concludes with the idea that the spiritual world as elevated over the physical is in fact a sign of corruption and he begins with this refrain that we'll hear uh, several times poverty and filth and wretched contentment poverty meaning want you know your soul's poverty is what we call all the ways in which your soul or spirit is wanting filth is in pollution you know the modern soul is polluted with all sorts of junk and finally wretched contentment another way to translate this might be complacency but i think uh c- keeping it as wretched contentment has an almost religious and condemnatory tone to it which i think is best to uh, preserve so uh continuing Quote, verily, a polluted stream is man; one must be a sea to be able to receive a polluted stream without becoming unclean. Behold, I teach you the overman; he is this sea in him, your great contempt can go under. What is the greatest experience you can have? It is the hour of the great contempt. The hour in which your happiness too arouses your disgust and even your reason and your virtue. The hour when you say, What matters my happiness? It is poverty and filth and wretched contentment. But my happiness ought to justify existence itself. End quote. Again, the implicit criticism of the idea of measuring existence by happiness or suffering. The greatest hour one can experience is the hour of great contempt as he calls it here. And what does he say arouses it? Even your own happiness. And there's a very, I don't know. There's a very interesting, um, I don't know, just consideration here about how suffering can be a means to an end. Right. But happiness, um, there's a couple times where Nietzsche talks about daring to make war on your own happiness and recognizing how happiness, um, might be harmful to life in many respects. And I don't think he means like eudaimonia or um, what would you say, like fulfillment or or things of that nature. But, um, you know, I mean, again, like he says it right here in the passage, happiness in the form of wretched contentment, of um, an inducement to stay static, to stay in one place. Um, But the great... Contempt he speaks of it's a necessary first stage in any transformation. We put ourselves through in life You know when we decide we need to change We always have to make war in our current way of life It includes making war in our own happiness. It's in the name of something greater Which is the change into something better than we are now and so first one has to recognize the problems or say not even that just say to themselves that they'll part with the happiness that naturally emerges from dwelling continuously in what is familiar and um, what is easy. You know, your great contempt can go under, he says, in the image of the overman because the overman is that meaning that justifies this, um, this disgust for your own happiness in your life as it is now. The promise of that greater than that lies in your future that you can give rise to. Um, and so nietzsche continues describing this hour of great contempt um, because you know discarding your present happiness is not all that is required and so the passage continues quote the hour when you say what matters my reason does it crave knowledge as the lion for its food it is poverty and filth and wretched contentment the hour when you say what matters my virtue as yet it has not made me rage how weary i am of my good and my evil all that is poverty and filth and wretched contentment the hour when you say what matters my justice i do not see that i am flames and fuel but the just are flames and fuel the hour when you say what matters my pity is not pity the cross on which he is nailed who loves man but my pity is no crucifixion have you yet spoken thus have you yet cried thus oh, that I might have heard you cry thus, End quote. So what matters my reason, right? We covered this in the episode on Philosophers last week. Does reason crave knowledge as the lion does for its food? This means we ought to ask, does reason serve life? Is your will to truth really aligned with your will to power? You know, in order to follow will to power um, in a way that is life-enhancing, all things which, you know, they give rise to that, which is greater, but then they go under as he talks about, um, to truly transform, right. You must be willing to part with your current, your current character or your current assumptions or your current form of logic or your current moral ideas, your ideas of justice, even pity. You have to be willing to, you know, let yourself down from the cross of your own pity for man. Because man is a thing to be overcome. Don't let your love of man lead you to wish to preserve mankind. Which is, you know, you'd be preserving man but only as a lifeless specimen. And uh, this part of Zarathustra's sermon ends with Zarathustra comparing the overman to lightning. To lick at you with his tongue. wishing to, He says he wishes to lick the crowd into a frenzy. You know, quote, I teach you the overman. He is this lightning. He is this frenzy. End quote. Now, famously, the people do not much care for what Zarathustra has said, and they make fun of him and turn their attention to the tightrope walker who begins his performance. Zarathustra doesn't let up, however, and in part four, he continues with his sermon, using the imagery of the tightrope walker to try and get through to the crowd. Rather than interrupting the sermon, as I've done in the past section, uh, I'm just going to simply read through this part in full because not as much commentary is necessary, I think, with everything we've sort of already talked about. And what you'll see as we read through it is that every proclamation of this part of Zarathustra's speech is a variation on the same theme. Zarathustra lists off a series of types of people and the types of uh, lives that he loves. Um, What they all have in common is that Zarathustra is praising those who are willing to live powerfully and dangerously in such a way as to live in acceptance of the fact that they will one day go under and as such consciously try to prepare the way for something greater than themselves. These are lives of becoming that he gives praise for lives of transformation. Um, The significance of that word Untergehen is central here. Um, And as are the metaphors of like, there's, there's a German prefix to two of them over and under right Uber and Unter and Nietzsche uses quite a few of those words in this uh, passage and then another thing you will notice if you're at all familiar with the Gospels is that this passage is intentionally modeled after the Sermon on the Mount uh, you know in Jesus's Sermon he lists, uh, lists all these different types of people whom are blessed and Zarathustra here begins each line with I love those who or I love him who and so Um, Some people have actually translated that as Zarathustra, saying blessed are these, blessed are those. But um, it's, I think that's like a bit more of an interpretive um, translation and that uh, a more faithful one to Nietzsche's idea. Probably it's not to exactly mirror what Jesus says that, you know, rather than God blessing somebody, it's Zarathustra who's giving his love or his blessing. Um, So he begins by using the image of the rope. That's the first thing he brings up, which he draws from the tightrope walker, um, beginning his performance far above the crowd while Zarathustra gives this sermon. So um, I will read uh, part four, or most of part four quote, Man is a rope tied between beast and overman a rope over an abyss, a dangerous across a dangerous on the way a dangerous looking back a dangerous shuddering and stopping What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end what can be loved in man is that he is an overture into going under i love those who do not know how to live except by going under for they're those who cross over i love the great despisers because they are the great reverers and arrows of longing for the other shore i love those who do not first seek behind the stars for a reason to go under and be a sacrifice But who sacrifice themselves for the earth that the earth may someday become the overman's i love him who lives to know and who wants to know so that the overman may live someday and thus he wants to go under i love him who works and invents to build a house for the overman and to prepare the earth animal and plant for him for thus he wants to go under i love him who loves his virtue for virtue is the will to go under in an arrow of longing I love him who does not hold back one drop of spirit for himself but wants to be entirely the spirit of his virtue thus he strides over the bridge as spirit I love him who makes his virtue his addiction and his catastrophe for his virtue's sake he wants to live on and live on longer I love him who does not want to have too many virtues one virtue is more virtue than two because it is more of a noose on which his catastrophe may hang i love him whose soul squanders itself who wants no thanks and returns none for he always gives away and does not want to preserve himself i love him who is abashed when the dice fall to make his fortune and asks am i then a crooked gambler for he wants to perish i love him who casts golden words before his deeds and does even more than he promises For he wants to go under i love him who justifies future and redeems past generations for he wants to perish of the present i love him who chastens his god because he loves his god for he must perish of the wrath of his god i love him whose soul is deep even in being wounded and who can perish of a small experience thus he goes gladly over the bridge I love him whose soul is over full so that he forgets himself and all things are in him thus all things spell his going under I love him who has a free spirit and a free heart thus his head is only the entrails of his heart but his heart drives him to go under I love all those who are heavy drops falling one by one out of the dark cloud that hangs over men they herald the advent of lightning And as heralds, they perish. Behold, I am a herald of lightning and a heavy drop from the cloud. But this lightning is called overman. End quote. So again, the lightning metaphor for the overman at the end there. And notice how he says that Zarathustra is a heavy drop from the cloud and a herald of the lightning. So Zarathustra is not the lightning himself. He's the prophet of the overman. I think it's very telling that if Nietzsche wished us to take from this, that we ourselves shall become overmen. He would have portrayed one. Instead, he portrays as his central figure, the person who lives for the value of the overman, who teaches others to live in service of such a value. In other words, just like Christianity doesn't teach you to become God yourself, but to live in such a way that you honor God. Zarathustra and all of his preachments here does not tell his followers to become the overman, but to what? to squander themselves, to go under to prepare the way for the overman to arrive. And so why is this that we ought to be okay with perishing and squandering our lives, letting our own virtues be our calamity? There, there are many different types of person or types of life that Zarathustra lists off here, and they're not, they're not all the same. You know, he includes people. You might even expect Nietzsche to criticize too. You know, the person who goes over the bridge is spirit and holds back not one drop of spirit. Or the one who loves his god or one who feels so deeply that he can perish even of a small wound you know why praise a spiritual person or a worshiper of god or apparently a fragile person right but notice what he emphasizes not holding back one drop of one's spirit so he's describing a spiritual person but somebody who he doesn't keep his spirituality for himself he makes it his whole virtue a wholesale commitment and in the next line he speaks of virtue as a thing that becomes a person's great catastrophe although um virtue interestingly you know it's like he's talking about the value of going under but he also praises one who out of his virtue wishes to live long right and uh and who clings and uh doesn't go quiet into that good night um but virtue becoming someone's catastrophe i think in the way than the 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 common idiom we talk about being punished for our virtues right our virtues that that's to say our our aspects of our character which define us and which are that which is best in us that is also what we perish of because our virtues speak to what it is we value most and you know what it is that we value most is often what's most deadly you know we perish of what we love and so speaking of love when he speaks of one who loves one's God he speaks of loving your God so much that you chasten your God which is a way of saying to rebuke or recriminate you're God. So you reject what you find holy because you love it so much. <laughs> you know, um, that's, It sounds uh, paradoxical or oxymoronic, but I think anyone who's been on a deep sort of spiritual quest or had an existential crisis can understand what Nietzsche means here. And it mirrors the way Nietzsche speaks of passing through convictions. Through the total love of an idea, one comes to know the idea better than anyone else and therefore perceives what is uh, flawed about it. So one willing to risk the wrath of his God in order to speak the truth of his heart to his God or about his God, right? Or in the case of perishing, even from a small wound, we can think of Nietzsche's praise of the Greek aristocrats who felt their passions so strongly and acted on their passions. So strongly they often killed themselves for the sake of their lovers or threw themselves into death, you know, for the sake of their pride. Or if, you know, because their honor was affronted in some way. Another metaphor we might find in these preachments, you know, aside from going under, um, but it's really the same thing, but it's another way Nietzsche talks about it. The idea of giving away, of not wanting to preserve yourself, It's a but a more positive image, right, to consider give yourself away, right? Rather than hoarding our lives, hoarding life, um, we should give it all away. We should live in such a way that we give ourselves to the world. We give of what is best in us, of what we love the most. Um, what is the line again? I love him whose soul squanders itself, who wants no thanks, and returns none, for he always gives away and does not want to preserve himself. And really, one cannot understand this passage without understanding the underlying moral idea that Nietzsche is attacking here, the idea that it's a, on some level, a polemic against. And really, it's not even it's not even the moral idea, but there's moral ideas that spring up from it, and it's it's an instinct that he's attacking here. It's the instinct of self-preservation. Zarathustra loves people who can act in such a way that they commit to an ideal or a principle or a value and give themselves to that fully, which may mean parting with one's comfort. It may mean parting with wealth or status or privilege. It may mean alienating friends or being cast out of institutions or making yourself an enemy of the age in which you live. It may even mean to give up one's life. That's the ultimate sacrifice one would be making. But it's a conception of life. That's not based on preservation, not based on preserving oneself or preserving comfort. The underlying theme is that none of those things are the meaning of life. And if your religion and your morality or your ideology or whatever it is springs up out of that instinct to preserve yourself, you're building on a foundation of weakness. It's it it's a going to be a morality of descending life rather than us ending, um, and so Nietzsche's philosophy of becoming and of overcoming is in direct opposition, therefore, to self preservation. Um, and so, the and the beautiful way of talking about it, he mentions he invokes it a couple times here, and then other times throughout. Thus, thus spoke are is that of being an arrow of longing. Shoot the arrow of your life as high as you can, and don't be afraid of the downfall that will inevitably come. Just fire higher, farther than anyone has gone before. Aim for the greatest distance. And unlike the common adage, you know, shoot for the moon, and even if you miss, you will land among the stars, that's what people like to say, and Nietzsche says, well, no, you will you definitely will, uh, quote-unquote, miss. You're going to fall back down to where you came from, because that's the nature of all things. But in the very act of aiming far and high and daring to make this great attempt, this great bow shot, you are in that act already living in a way that honors and brings forth forth the overman because you are overcoming the self-preservative instinct in favor of overcoming. And that's how you make life meaningful and create the highest value, by giving in to your deepest, most powerful longing and giving your whole life to it in total foreknowledge that it leads to your downfall. If the repudiation of the self-preservative instinct were not clear enough in what Nietzsche's saying, he follows up this sermon with another twin sermon in which he describes another figure, the last man. The last man is everything problematic and faulty that Nietzsche sees about modernity taking hold and the kind of new person that our modern values will produce. Instead of growth and elevation and, uh, you know, the... Being a new direction for our becoming, however you might put it, the last man is what humanity becomes should we continue to trend towards safety and stasis and contentment. We'll continue the great leveling of mankind and continue to grind down all that is exceptional until we've created man into a final, unchanging image, a last image, hence the last man. This is mankind that has stopped stopped becoming, stopped evolving, stopped trying to give rise to something greater beyond itself. Man who simply hopes for duration of his current bland contentment. In the sermon that follows, we get this contrast between these two figures, and it's worth noting the last man is only brought up because the people do not really understand what Zarathustra is talking about when he first invokes the overman and then talks about loving those who go under. And so he says, well, maybe I can explain the overman by making reference to everything the overman is not. This is helpful. It re- reinforces the idea that this is a true binary, a true opposition between these two figures, because really they represent directions. One image, the overman points towards life, towards power, towards the ascendance of life and power. The other image points towards weakness, atrophy, degeneration. And so it's like, it's truly like North and South, right? There are, Opposite directions for mankind, which are mutually exclusive. And so Nietzsche tells us about the last man, or rather, Zarathustra does. Same thing, you know what I'm saying? All right. <clears throat> quote The time is coming when man will no longer give birth to a star. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming. He that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. Uh, end quote. Uh, you know, a quick word here Uh, again we see nietzsche reject what we might call a central tenet of our uh our therapy-based culture in the west today um that's one of my cultural criticisms we live in a therapy culture nietzsche attacks the bland self-affirmation that we constantly and commonly apply to ourselves and um and to others you know today we tend to consider it negative or even harmful to feel feelings such as contempt for oneself. You would never say that in polite society, right? But Nietzsche suggests that it's the feeling of great contempt, the perception of all that's faulty or ugly within you that opens up the way for transformation, that without this sense of disdain, we can't pitch ourselves out of our state of comfort. And so Nietzsche is not advocating for the Christian idea that suffering or self-hatred is inherently good for the soul or that we ought to like dwell in such a state. Um, I mean, in fact, it's actually by telling ourselves that a contemptible way of life is okay, that we allow ourselves to continue on in such a state indefinitely and end up in a way prolonging our, uh, our, our suffering. the, you know, the background suffering that we, we have, and we're in a state that's like less than what we could be. We need to be able to judge ourselves honestly, and sometimes harshly in order to change. So back to the text quote, What is love what is creation what is longing what is a star thus asks the last man and he blinks the earth has become small and on it hops the last man who makes everything small his race is as ineradicable as the flea beetle the last man lives the longest we have invented happiness say the last men and they blink they have left the regions where it was hard to live for one needs warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs against him. For one needs warmth. End quote. So by now the contrast of the last man is the creature of self-preservation um, versus the overman who is the image of self-overcoming I think is very clear just even in these first lines. The key aspect of this part of the text is that a life lived for the sake of merely preserving one's life makes everything small. Um, such that giving birth to a star, as Nietzsche calls it, so creating new values, becomes no longer possible. The last man doesn't even recognize what a star is any longer. He no longer perceives a high, distant, unreachable ideal as the meaning of life. He no longer, um, what would you say? I mean, he doesn't create. He doesn't yearn for anything any longer. He's not. He doesn't long for anything. All of his quotidian needs have been met, and then some by a utilitarian society in which even the social life man's relationship to other men right that's simply another numeric factor to plug in another in a series of needs one may tabulate you know which human beings the organism require in order to live this is why life as self-preservation becomes small okay we're just animals and the task of elevating life is that's silly that's goes against nature we can abandon that we can just be taken care of like animals, you just meet these certain needs, you plug in all these factors and humans should be quote unquote happy. It's life life in a skinner box, right? Walden two. So I'm gonna skip ahead a bit in the sermon here and read sort of my own abridged version of the rest of the passage. Quote Who wants to rule, who obey? Both require too much exertion. Everybody wants the same. Everybody is the same. Whoever feels different goes voluntarily into a madhouse. Formerly, all the world was mad, say the most refined, and they blink. End quote. And so here I think we can recognize the last man, the voice of the last man in the kind of moral discourse that we hear today from people who think of themselves as historically educated. You know, they walk around thinking that, everyone was like a hideously evil, immoral person until five years ago. (laughs) But, you know, the more sophisticated ones, they'll admit, you know, well, we have our flaws today Um, and it wasn't, you know, as if all history was morally equivalent, but we can see this sort of moral progression throughout history that leads up to where we are today. And maybe, and we'll have even more moral progress in the future, right? Um, But I think that's what he's talking about. He says, the last men say that all the world was mad that in previous ages men were not all the same you know some men were seen as fit to command and others to obey there was an order of rank among men there were hierarchies men were not seen as equal the happiness of one people or the happiness of one type of person was not seen as equivalent to the happiness of another and that's one of the great criticisms Nietzsche makes of utilitarianism that the measure of happiness or unhappiness or even physical pain or pleasure requires that we assert the equivalence of inherently unequal things we cannot know whether someone who lived in the bronze age experienced pain even just you know physiological physical pain right we can't know if they would experience that the same way we do you know would a spartan who had endured the rite of passage the uh what is it the kryptea crypt- i think it is Would a spartan who was forced to you know Endure this rite of passage where he has to live off the land without any aid from the the broader society and just survive out on his own. Would this type of person feel physical pain in the same way uh, as you or I, who were, you know, raised in comfort? Likely, if you're listening to this, you were probably raised in comfort. Although, you know, I know it doesn't apply to everybody, but I don't know. In a world in which all are made equal, all humans seen as equal, all states of pain or pleasure measurable which suggests some sort of universal standard, right? And the value or worth of all lives and all ways of living measured as roughly being the same, you know, who would wish to command or obey if that's the case, the concept becomes a mere injustice in the wake of our egalitarian and utilitarian, you know, revolutions and thinking, commanding and obeying falls by the wayside and the order of rank collapses. And, um, you know, maybe you think that's all to the good, but what Zarathustra points out here is that we stop valuing the exceptions to the rule and begin to value only the rule. And that Perhaps that's a necessary consequence of all this. And The passage ends with the refrain, quote, We have invented happiness, say the last man, and they blink, end quote. Um, and so, yes, you know, uh, of course we would... If you are looking at things in this clinical utilitarian way of that's ultimately based on the self-preservative instinct, you would say no one's known happiness as we have known it today because no one else has been as comfortable or as content as we are today. No one has had the luxuries that we've had available, the conveniences that we now have available. So we have invented happiness, of course. Um, and so as you probably know, the people of the marketplace meet what Zarathustra says with laughter. And they say in response to him, quote, give us this last man, Zarathustra, turn us into these last men, and then we shall make you a gift of the overman, end quote. Um, and so Zarathustra, you know, when he starts out talking about the last man, he says, I'll, I'll give them the picture of the most contemptible man. And their response is to say, make it, give us this, make us into this. You go do some down-going and make way for the overman. How about you go squander your life, Zarathustra? We'll be fine here living in in our wretched contentment. Uh, I can only say, how much did Nietzsche nail it there? This has largely been the response to his ideas. (laughs) Ever since they came into the broad societal consciousness, the vast majority do prefer the last man and take that to be their ideal instead. And I don't even think that's even arguable that that's what our society resembles today. What happens next is a somewhat en- en- enigmatic scene, but it makes a lot of sense in light of Nietzsche's interpretation of Plato's Symposium. I'll just use that as an analogy. So remember in that text when we talked about it, Nietzsche sees Socrates' speech, it's the highest rung of the ladder and an ascending series of speeches which each serve to more deeply reveal the true nature of love. So Socrates' speech is that love is love of the beautiful, the beautiful itself rather. Not any one beautiful thing, but the love of the beautiful itself. And that what is truly beautiful is to live in virtue because virtue endures long beyond the physical form or physical beauty. And the way that one can live in virtue is by living a philosophical life and thus gaining the wisdom of how to live in virtue. And uh, that's what endures the longest is the most beautiful thing because what we're looking for in our pursuit of that which we love is immortality. And so Socrates has thus stated his argument, but the audience may be left to wonder whether what Socrates says is actually correct. And then immediately after Alcibiades drunkenly barges into the room and he shows us that what Socrates told us is the truth. He makes a drunken confession of love, this most beautiful, powerful, and regal figure of Alcibiades, who's not a deep philosopher at all, but he's madly in love with this ugly plebeian old man. And this confession reveals that, in fact, Socrates is correct. Alcibiades loves what? He loves the beautiful itself. And what is that? Well, it's embodied in Socrates, the man who's not physically beautiful, but a philosopher who instructs those around him in virtue. So we therefore get a sort of allegorical demonstration of what Socrates argued in explicit abstract terms. So I would posit to you that what happens in Zarathustra Zarathustra is given a picture of eudaimonia, the good life. The meaningful life is the life lived in pursuit of something greater than yourself, towards which you give up everything. You are willing to go under, to give rise to something greater than you. That's what it means to go under in the name of the overman. And so what follows that? Well, then we get the scene of the tightrope walker who has begun his act and the rope is suspended between these two towers over the spectators who are watching below. And as I mentioned, you know, he's begun his tightrope walk across the rope as Zarathustra began speaking. And the word in German for tightrope walker is actually rope dancer. So the idea would be that he's sort of he's supposed to nimbly. hes perform, This is a performance. He's not just doing a, a just a simple walk across, right? But um, he's supposed to dance across, we might say. Then something unusual happens. A jester comes out from the tower from which the tightrope walker exited and at the exact point that he reaches the middle of the rope um the jester comes up behind the performer and begins shouting at him and haranguing him and heckling him and so symbolically what are we seeing this is high noon the great noontide he's exactly in the middle of the rope suspended between beast and overman as zarathustra said um this is the zenith of man where we're halfway to the overman and um if you if you listen to my last conversation i had with carl nord the jester in my interpretation, as I said there, is Nietzsche. He's the court jester. And the way that the court jester poked fun at the nobility, was able to poke fun at royalty and the nobility, and said things that couldn't be said in polite society. Nietzsche is a clown in that manner. He's willing to be absurd and to be offensive and to be ridiculous because uh, through this he's able to be truthful. But it's fascinating what happens next in the story, and this sort of demonstration in allegorical terms of what uh, everything Zarathustra just preached so here's the scene quote forward lame foot the jester shouted in an awe-inspiring voice forward lazy bones smuggler pale face or I shall tickle you with my heel what are you doing here between towers the tower is where you belong you want to be locked up you block the way for one better than yourself and with every word he came closer and closer. But when he was but one step behind the dreadful thing happened which made every mouth dumb and every eye rigid he uttered a devilish cry and jumped over the man who stood in his way this man however seeing his rival win lost his head and the rope tossed away his pole and plunged into the depth even faster a whirlpool of arms and legs the marketplace became, became as the sea when a tempest pierces it The people rushed apart and over one another especially at the place where the body must hit the ground zarathustra however did not move and it was right next to him that the body fell badly maimed maimed and disfigured but not yet dead after a while the shattered man recovered consciousness and saw zarathustra kneeling beside him what are you doing here he asked at last i have long known that the devil would trip me now he will drag me to hell would you prevent him By my honor friend answered zarathustra all that of which you speak does not exist there is no devil and no hell your soul will be dead even before your body fear nothing further the man looked up suspiciously if you speak the truth he said i lose nothing when i lose my life i am not much more than a beast that has been taught to dance by blows and a few meager morsels by no means zarathustra said you have made danger your vocation. There is nothing contemptible in that. Now you perish of your vocation. For that I will bury you with my own hands. When Zarathustra had said this, the dying man answered no more, but he moved his hand as if he sought Zarathustra's hand in thanks. End quote. And so we have in this allegory an example of how Nietzsche wishes his teaching to change our lives in a real sense. Um be one who makes danger their vocation and be willing to perish of your vocation and so etymologically a vocation what is that it has a religious origin it means a calling you know before people would say god called them to their particular profession their way of life now we no longer believe in such things but the idea of a calling of some task that one feels born to do that is what we can still invoke by the idea of a vocation so i think both the jester and Zarathustra represent different aspects of Nietzsche the jester is the cynical prodding brutally honest side of Nietzsche that spurs man on to get to the other shore to cross the bridge to make their life a path to the other man he's the great uh, you know remember he says he loves the great despisers because they're the great reverer he is showing his great contempt for man but as an inducement to get man to change to transform to um accept becoming and make their lives um a part of that right um part of that uh, quest to give rise to something greater and so uh it's he's that's why the great despisers are also the great reverers because it's out of love for man that nietzsche is uh, cynical about man and willing to be brutally honest towards him to make him change he doesn't cut us any slack right but the comedy in all this is that because of the jester's ribbing and the fact that he surprises the tightrope walker by leaping over him directly causes his death um and later in the book in book three of Zarathustra in the chapter on the old and new tables as uh, says in section four Nietzsche references this scene again he says quote only a jester thinks that man can be skipped over end quote so I think we have Nietzsche's sort of self-aware ironism there and poking fun at himself because even if man is a bridge and not a goal you know nevertheless we must live our lives as they are we have to experience life as a human all too human being we don't allow for overcoming by trying to skip steps right change lasting meaningful change is always gradual and so nietzsche is saying you know only myself the clown the court jester the sharp tongued ironist you know the the daring philosophers and free spirits only types like me are willing to entertain the idea of like making that leap leaping over man as it is now it's a dangerous leap and it and it can result in the destruction of man as he is Nietzsche is willing to help us go under according to the rule he gives us in antichrist too that all which is weak and botched should perish and in fact we should even help it to perish but Zarathustra on the other hand I think is a more idealized aspect of Nietzsche he rejects cynicism he rejects the cynical view of the life the tightrope walker has led which the tightrope walker himself sort of expresses in his despair. You know, Zarathustra tells him, you know, in in essence, you're not just another animal in a Skinner box acting according to carrots and sticks. There's something valuable and meaningful beyond that. And what is that? It's being willing to fully commit to a, a vocation, to a calling, and specifically to one which is a calling of living dangerously. And likewise, he rejects, you know, the spiritual world's entreaties as well. He tells the man, these don't exist. Don't be afraid of that. The only value is in this life. And so that's the great task set for us by Nietzsche. Um, It goes hand in hand with the eternal recurrence. It's not exactly the same as the test of the eternal recurrence, but here the, what it is, it's the great task is to invest all value in this life, but also to live in such a way that we willingly part with life to realize that a great life is not a life that's prolonged. It's not about striving for duration. It's, it's something given to the world, something which we embrace You know, as a temporary thing. We strive to waste it in a beautiful way. That the only way life is truly justified or redeemed is by creating value. Live for what is greater than you, for the future, for the value you can create. It's not something we save, it's something we spend. Zarathustra is telling us to spend it on the overman you have to spend it some way so spend it in the most valuable meaningful way that's all everyone uh next week we're going to jump ahead to a passage later in Zarathustra in which we take this idea and see how it fits with the eternal return and what we find is that both work together to produce something greater than the sum of the two parts um and so join me next week when we're going to talk about the convalescent and uh all right Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.